from uh, the Gospel of John. Before I do, I want to look at the letter of John to a passage that may be very familiar to all of you. As in the first epistle of John, chapter 4, we may go back to this chapter later if we have opportunity. But John says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We are living in a time when fear, like every time, seems to run rampant. When we consider how small we are in the grand scheme of things, and when you consider the events of the last couple of years, it becomes very, very obvious how small we are. Thank you. How easily we are taken with fear. How easily uh, our lives first wax in strength until we hit our peak in our youth, in the prime of our youth, as some might call it. And then over the years, we grow more and more in fear. And when you really think about it, there is quite a few good reasons to fear. If it wasn't for the fact that the Lord of all has loved us and that we are loved by perfect love, which might cast out said fear. Now, I'd like to just intimately look into Jesus's life and who Jesus is specifically, who people say he is, uh, in the Gospel of John in chapter 7. We're going to read the first 13 verses here in a moment. I'd like you to bear in mind that there is an end. One of the reasons why we concentrate so much on belief and the origin of belief is because it is a sequence of events that causes us to go from believing in God to saved in heaven with him. And it is an unbreakable set of events. It is an unbreakable chain, you might say, that if we believe in him, the work is done. And so to know who he is, is to have a relationship and perfect love available to us. We love him because he first loved us with said perfect love. And if that love is to be perfected, if fear is truly to be cast out in us, if we are to live these lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus... It all started when he first loved us and made it that we could believe in him. And we'll look into that in just a moment, but I'd like to to set the stage for this chapter. So like I said, John chapter 7. It's going to start out, and many many sermons are preached from John chapter 6 and John chapter 3 and many other places in this most wonderful gospel. But this spot in particular is different. Up until this point in John, many of the things that happen are given a time frame. It's the next day, it's a week later, it's something along those lines. But here, this is going to start out, it's going to say, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Well, something has happened, and Jesus has, is no longer traveling to where the Jews are, because they had sought to kill him. They were seeking after his life. The reason was because of a back and forth that happened in the previous chapter, that many of you may be very aware of. But before that was a back-to-back-to-back sequence of events that were pretty intense, generally speaking. Jesus goes in Jerusalem and he goes through the pool of Bethesda. And this man who had been lame for many, many years, years that you might say are beyond count when you think about how long someone could be afflicted in one place, and he heals him. And only that one man. Then he proceeds to go and he goes out to a desert place and teaches the people and they come to him and he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with the amount of food I could foot fit here in this place. We probably couldn't feed this group of people here with the amount of food that he fed all those people with. Then he proceeded to send the disciples away because they were going to try and make him king. He sends them across the sea and he goes up into a mountain. This is the same day as the feeding of the 5,000. And then from the mountain, he sees his disciples in a storm and proceeds to walk across the water to them in that famous event wherein Jesus actually allowed Peter to come out onto the water with him. And for a moment, he also walked on the water. Then they get to the other side. And all this happens in John 5 and 6. 
And they have a very, very long and detailed discussion about who is the real bread of life. And what is the real source of nourishment and pleasure that we get from food? The real thing that all food is supposed to be pointing towards. Jesus Christ, our Savior, the real bread of life. And wherein they have a number of different subjects keep coming up throughout the course of that chapter. And one of them is Jesus saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Eternal life is not in you. These are hard sayings, but it's not the only hard sayings. He's also going to say other things, such as that no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Having said all these things, and having revealed that he came from the Father again and again as he did, not just through his miracles, but through his testimony, he came to the point where the Jews were no longer willing to put up with him as a Messiah, were no longer willing to put up with him as a teacher or a healer. They wanted him gone, and they wanted him dead, and they hunted for him. Now here they were in Galilee, so that he would not be in Jerusalem, because they sought to kill him. Now, there are two important points about this to consider, that Jesus could have gone to Jerusalem and not been killed. He says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I take it up again. So we know that in part, it wasn't necessary for him not to be there, but it was right, and it was the will of God. This does teach a lesson about persecution and things like that. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But I'd like to read the whole passage so we can kind of have that in the back of our minds. This is John chapter 7. It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go, not yet up to the, I go not up yet to this feast, for my time is not yet full come. And when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. The word of God. There are a number of very important lessons we'd like to consider as we go through this passage. But first, let's again continue to set the table. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Jews were blessed in a number of different ways. We have a few traditions left that are uh, cultural that do point us to Jesus, right? We celebrate Christmas. And we, culturally, there's a time where we all uh, remember that God sent his son to be born into the world. But that was nothing compared to the feasts that God set set aside for the Israelites. For a time when Mallory and I were first married, we actually boycotted Christmas, as horrible as that sounds, because we were conflicted about the nature of the holiday and how it had uh, become something different than what it had once been. Then... Uh, Andy was kind enough to show me how many times in the scriptures that Jesus had the people setting aside time for feasting and celebration. And so showing that God had a purpose in these things, that we should be together, that we should celebrate all the good things that God has given us at different times in our lives. And I am very glad to have done a complete about face on that. But the feasts of God were all designed to teach about him and their experience as a people, and most importantly, Jesus. They were all going to point forth to Jesus and the Father and the Holy Ghost and their work in our lives. The Feast of Tabernacles was also similar to that. Feast of Tabernacles is one that I did a bit of a study on this. I can't say I'm a master of it, and I certainly haven't done it. But the way that it reads um, is that the people would go up and they would go gather uh, sticks and things, and they would build themselves a type of booth, right? And, and it would in the later traditions, you can actually go find where they would have certain parameters and sizes that they would stay in. They had no limits that I saw for width. And so you and your family would go and make this booth out of the things that grew around, nothing um, unclean, nothing made by men. Uh, they would make these booths and they would go and they would eat in them somewhat outdoors in these uh, roughshod type of houses, far less um, sturdy and beautiful than the houses that you're used to dwelling in. 
And they would make these things and they would dwell in them for a week. Now, Jesus was going to take part in the Feast of Tabernacles here because he was going to fulfill the entirety of the law. He was going to live out everything that was commanded in it, being the perfect, obedient man. And thank God for that. But in so doing, they pointed to a number of things. The first was that when they came out of Egypt, that God dwelt in tabernacles of men. He dwelt in a moving tent with them. But this points forward to something even better. And I'd love to spend the entire morning concentrating on this, but I'm just going to leave this here and maybe uh, something you could study later if you'd like. But as he came and dwelt in that lesser building of a tabernacle, and as they would go and eat their meals in these lesser buildings that they had made for this particular week of celebration, so likewise God sends his spirit to dwell in us, us in these sin-sick bodies. After he begins his work in us, And he takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh and sends his spirit and sprinkles clean water and washes us from the inside out. So likewise, God comes and dwells in a house that by its nature was certainly not befitting of God, certainly not befitting of the high and great king. And yet he does. And he does so lovingly and carefully. This feast was one that they would tend to do together as families. The brethren here, they're being spoken of um, as being brother of Jesus were generally speaking his family, possibly and likely his extended family. I don't think it included those who would later write books of the Bible just because of the nature of what happened in the previous chapter and how it ended. But be that as it may, his brethren seems to have not believed in him, his family. It says here that his brethren said unto him, depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. You have to remember a couple things about his brethren and his family. They said, isn't this Jesus who we know? The carpenter's son, they named him and his brothers. And it said that Jesus was not able to do any miracles there because of their lack of faith. You see, Jesus to them is hiding. He says, well, if you're, if you're really doing these things, let all those followers of yours see what you're doing. Why don't you, why don't you go out back into, into the public places where the center of things are? If you really are all you say you are. Why don't you go there? He says, for there's no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. So not only are they accusing Jesus of hiding, they're accusing him of being ambitious, of desiring to have material gain in this world, to have followers, to be someone that people would like. And then they say, if thou do these things, show thyself to the world. If, if you do these miracles we keep hearing about, if it's true that you do these things, Go out there, prove it. He reminds us kind of of the passage where Jesus came to heal uh, the dead child. And he came and he told them he was coming to do that. And they laughed him to scorn because they didn't know who he was. This shows us that here they're going to the Feast of Tabernacles. Here they've had all the feasts. Here they live in one of possibly the greatest times to live if you really want to see God's plan unfolded. They have the temple. They have the oracles. They have the testimonies. They have the lineages. They have still the sacrifices ongoing of the old world. They have, or at least for a time, the last prophet. And then they have Jesus the fulfillment of all the prophecies with them, walking and teaching in his place, performing the miracles that were prophesied of, being the fulfillment of everything they had ever taught. And yet still, having those spiritual advantages did not profit them at all. That's something we should bear in mind. We are blessed with a great heritage, a great heritage here, not just uh, generally in America, but particularly here in this place, in this church. It's one that is a great comfort, and it should be. We should be very glad for our fathers and their fathers, both physically and spiritually. We should be glad for the families that we're able to be around who have gained so much. We should be glad that we have this testimony and we can freely read it with no one stopping us. We should be glad that we have those who desire to teach and desire to encourage and desire to uphold all the work of this church. But we must remember that without knowing who Jesus is, it is all worth nothing. It is all wasted. It says, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Neither did his brethren believe in him. Remember, after the end of that conversation I had mentioned in John 6, there was a great walking away. Many people left Jesus. It says that he... These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascended up where he was before? It is a spirit that quickeneth. 
The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come to me except my father. I'm sorry, except it were given unto him of my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Of course, he doesn't ask this, not knowing the answer. He asked this to prove them and to get this very answer out of the mouth of Peter. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he was that should betray him, beginning one, being one of the twelve. Have I not chosen you twelve? Now those are some of the most comforting words in all the Bible, isn't it? But they thought for a moment that maybe, maybe they were the faithful. There they were, standing when all walked away. And they didn't, he didn't say that what Jesus taught was comfortable. He didn't say necessarily that he liked it. He said, well, where else can we go? Indeed, even to Christians, sometimes the teaching of Christ is hard and heavy. But it is his teaching. But the important thing is that we would all go away. We would all be as even the very brethren of Jesus, who had seen him grow up, who had seen him sinless, who had seen him and heard the stories of how he had now begun to tell, te- tell miracles, and whose teaching began to be full and rich and right. They would ask later of him, who taught this man letters? Because it was astounding how deep and rich and full his teaching was. But they thought they knew him. They thought they knew who he was and what his training was and what his education was. But they didn't. They didn't know the most important fact about him. He is the son of the living God. That is the fact that separates any who will be saved from all who will be damned. It is the knowledge that he is the son of God, the son of the living God. More than this, though, Jesus knows what it's like to stand alone in the world. If his brethren rejected him, even his own family, then, beloved, you should be comforted. Now, we know generally that it says that he was afflicted with all things that we should be afflicted with, that he was tempted. He knows what it's like to be us, but knows specifically that he was rejected and insulted by his family to the point that he didn't even travel with them in a place where families typically would have gone altogether. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone when all, even of these disciples who he had chosen, had left except one. And then that one he sent away also. He knows what it's like to be alone because then, after all of that had happened, after walking and being persecuted, being sought after for years, he was finally alone completely on the cross. And he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it didn't just happen in that moment, although that moment would be one that if we, were, if we were to truly cast our imaginations upon it, our minds would stretch for eternity. Because Jesus had, from eternity, been with the Father. And that break, that separation is one that I don't think we can truly put our minds to. I don't think we can really rightly understand how alone he was in that moment. You have never been alone. You might not have always felt it. You might not have always Recognized, and you might not have always appreciated, and you certainly wouldn't have always properly responded to the goodness of God in your life for your entire life. We know this because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have offended and betrayed and been at war with him at one point. But Jesus had a peace that passed understanding, being in perfect peace and harmony from eternity past. A peace, I mean, you want to find out whether or not someone you know, you can have peace with them, try to make something. Yeah, even more so, maybe try to, try to make living things, right? God made the entire universe in perfect peace and harmony with himself, the Son and the Father. And yet he came first to be separated from God physically, to come down, to be with us, and then was separated from God entirely for that time on the cross. Again, seemed to be short, but was, in fact, quite long. But here he testifies back to them. Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, I don't think this is a general big statement about his death. I think he's just saying that my time isn't come yet to go up to the feast, but your time is always ready. You can go whenever you'd like. You know, you, no need to wait for me. But then he tells them the truth of the matter. He says, the world cannot hate you, 
but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The testimony of Jesus is something that we are called to bear witness to even to this day. Psalm 119 is one of my favorite passages of scripture, and I think that uh, it is for many people because it talks about a love of God's word and it separates it into categories, testimonies, judgments, statutes, his word. It says his word quickens. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto unto his word. It, it cleanses, cleanses our road, cleanses our life. These are his testimonies. But we are called, beloved, to be a witness in the earth, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to be that thing which shines, to be that thing which preserves and gives flavor to our Father in heaven. We were listening on the way in this morning to Genesis, and we got to that passage where Abraham is negotiating with the angels who are about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he begs and begs and begs these messengers of God to, and some might say God himself, to save the city for a lower and lower and lower number until they got all the way down to 10. But they didn't find 10. But what that teaches you is a bit of how God views the world. He suffers a great many things to be so long as we are here and our salt has not lost its saltiness. As he continues to preserve us and uphold us, it's very important that we follow Jesus in testifying of it. Now there are different ways that we testify. Jesus testified in his life. He was perfect and sinless. And in his action, in his walk, it was a testimony to all who sinned. He testified in his confession, confessing that God, the living God, is God, and also confessing that he came from him. He testified in his submission to the Father. That's why not a lot of people like these days. Submission is a difficult subject, because depending on who you're submitting to, someone's opinions may wildly vary on the matter. Right? On one moment, they might say submission in any form is evil. And then on another, on another, especially to God, then on another, they might say you must submit to these recent ordinances. We know that we are made to submit to the Father. But Jesus came and gave an example that is more than any of us can imagine having to submit to and do. Even forgetting everything of the most mighty works that he did in dying and raising from the grave. To be born as one of us. To be born and be put into a woman who was herself, just like David's testimony, fashioned in iniquity in her mother's womb. To come and be born and to humble himself to grow as a baby and to have to have his diapers changed and to be fed. To go and do all those things in submission to the Father shows his perfect testimony. Perfect testimony and confession that when we violate and fight against those things which God commands us to do, that we don't understand. But these things were done, of course, in perfect love, which I do hope to get back to here in just a moment. But he didn't just do that, but he also testified of them in specific testimony. Here he says of them that the world cannot hate you. And because he says that, he he tells the world the things that it is doing that are evil. Well, that implies that one thing that happens here is these men must in part be men-pleasers. For they were not doing this. He puts them in two separate categories. And so we must be aware of the danger of, as it say, woe unto you of whom all men speak well. That as we walk in the world, there are times when we have to testify specifically of evils being done. I know that the idea of fighting against the man is something of an American tradition. And there's two errors that you can come, really, in any situation. You can overdo or underdo it. The Bible says that we're to give honor to whom honor. We're we're called to submit to our magistrates, but also we have to obey first the highest magistrate in God. But we have a desire often to rebel. It's a part of our uh, national heritage, you might say. But there is a way in, in which we are called to speak when people are doing evil. One of the reasons why John ended up in jail and then later having uh, being beheaded was that he spoke against an evil thing that the ruler had done at the time. He took his brother's wife. This was not right. It was unlawful in the land in which he was ruling. And John spoke to him and told him so. However, the idea that we get to speak up against the powers that be is something that is, in a way, intoxicating. 
And we have to be careful not to make that our way of life. John spent far more of his time preaching in the desert than he did speaking up against the powers that be. And all the while, I'm sure he also, as Jesus did his cousin, obeyed the ordinances of God. It says that the government shall be upon his shoulders. And so it's a difficult thing to consider how well that Jesus went through his life, obeying all things that needed to be obeyed, but also rightly testified and spoke up against things that were wrong in the world. But they don't like that. No one likes when someone who speaks, especially about and from the word of God, especially as with the power of the word of God, speaks in ways that they don't like. In Kings, the king at the time, Ahab, husband of Jezebel, one of the most wicked kings in recorded history, in my estimation, was speaking to Jehoshaphat. And he says, it says, the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, he says, there is yet one man, Micah, the son of Imba, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Meaning they needed to seek God's help with something. He says, but, and this is a big one, but I hate him, for he doeth, he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. No one likes to find out when they are in sin. But remember, the beginning of Jesus' ministry was just like the beginning of John's ministry. It didn't start just with the words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but rather with the word, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a necessary turning from the evil of sin. It is wrong, and it is a scourge on God's creation. All sin is. But we have to see rightly. The Bible talks about how and when we should do that. In the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught and talks about how we are called to cast out the wood from our own eye before we, in meekness, deal with this in others. But we are called to rightly testify of the word of God when people are in violation of it, especially in certain cases, especially in those people in our lives. We're not called to just walk around to strangers and tell them how horrible we think they are in our general opinion. But in the circles where which God puts us, whether we be in places of power, he says that he calls us, he will cause us to speak before kings and governors. At that time, we testify. At that time, we do those things. We don't spend our lives in obsession being concerned with um, taking down people for their errors. But it is right that Christians should, in their lives, speak up and and testify as Jesus did. J.C. Ryle said of Jesus, they could have tolerated his opinions if he would have tolerated their sins. They could have tolerated his opinions if he would have tolerated their sins. The problem with Jesus was not just that he was a good teacher. It wasn't just that he was um, coming to obey the Father. It was that he would not tolerate sin in the world. He wouldn't tolerate it at all. He tolerated it so little that for love of those who were in this sin-sick world and who were sinners, he came and gave up his very life and died. This Jesus, who was somewhat foreign to the world, came and did that. He came and obeyed. He came and testified, as we are indeed sometimes called to do. But we should just remember this first as our primary example, that Jesus, when he came into the world, did this. I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Going on, he says, Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. It's not yet the right moment for me to go up to the city to join them. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast. Now, if you didn't know the rest of the story, how they were trying to kill him, for a moment, that would be a little comforting, wouldn't it? Indeed, it would have been. Well, you must have that same desire as Paul had, right? That his his old countrymen had desired and sought after him for forgiveness as the good physician for healing, as the emissary between God and man as the only way that they could be rejoined with the father who had saved their forefathers out of slavery. But no, it says that they wouldn't even speak about him because of fear of the Jews, because the Jews wanted him that bad that they were putting pressure on everywhere. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And this is a verse I'd like you to consider. Consider it both in its historical context and presently. 
There was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. He is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. He's a charlatan. He's, he's going to cause shipwreck. He's going to bring down the Romans upon the country. He's going to cause us all to be destroyed. Yeah, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. Ah, he causes all kinds of people to do horrible things. The same things are said about Jesus to this very day. It hasn't changed. Many people, when you go out into the world and talk about Jesus, they'll say, yeah, he was, he was a pretty good teacher. Gandhi even said, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians did not end up being a follower of Christ. Who Jesus is, God has masked over the whole world, lest they should see. That's why he spake to them in parables, it said. Why he does this is something that's his own choice. I was at dinner the other night, and uh, the owner of the restaurant ended up coming over and sitting with us for a time, and he, uh, he was telling us his view of the world. And his name, his two names, one meant beautiful, and the other one, his middle name, meant religion. I believe it was Jamel Dean. I could be wrong about the first name. But we were talking about name meanings, and his name actually was Beautiful Religion. But he didn't understand. He said, now if I'm a father, he says, why would I go if I have five children, just pretending five religions of the world, and I go whisper to one and say, you, you, uh, Hindu, and whisper to the other and say, you, uh, Buddha, and whisper to another and say, uh, Judaism, another Christian, another Islam. Why would I do that to my children? The fact is that that is the way the world views all religion when they don't know him. It's all the same. There's just this cloud over them. There are historical differences between the religions, not to go too far down this road, but every one of those is started by one man, except for this. Written across three major civilizations, hundreds of years, dozens of authors, different languages, and yet not one word doesn't agree. There's nothing like it in all the world. But those witness testimonies don't mean much, do they? That's why Jesus didn't start out by defending the Bible and all of its basics. He leads us to say, first, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's just within hand's reach of you. That is the witness. That is the testimony he gives. But the world does not know who he is. They call him all manner of different things. A good man, a deceiver, unlearned, they would call him. Then they... At different times, say he must come from God because of the miracles he did. They know where he's from. Then another time they say they don't know where he's from. That happens actually just, of course, across these couple uh, passages here. Oh, isn't this Jesus, whose father and mother we know? Then they say, we don't know where this guy came from. They call him the son of God. They say he has a devil. And this list goes on and on. But in so doing, in so saying, the prophecy of Simeon when he held him as a baby, begins to come to life. He said that, that the thoughts of many hearts shall be revealed. The revelation of Jesus in people's lives, the testimony of who he is, and the righteousness that he shines forth, and the obedience that he gave, that has an amazing effect. It reveals what's actually in people's hearts. And that's a troubling thing, because we can sometimes hide what's in our heart even from ourselves, and deceive ourselves. And certainly no man knows what's in anyone else's heart. But from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we testify of Jesus, we find even today, man's heart is exactly the same as it was. Rather pretending that Jesus is anything other than the Son of God. Because if he's the Son of God, beloved, well then, all is his. And if all is his, that means we answer to him. And if we answer to him, that makes him the most frightening being ever to walk the earth. However... He didn't come as a frightening being. Remember, he could have come that way the first time. But in God's divine pleasure, in his love for us, he sent his son as a lamb to come and be slain. What a great comfort that he who, with a word, could have had an army of angels against which an entire army of men couldn't stand against one angel. He could have sent an army of angels, not just to deliver him, but he could have simply come that way. And indeed, he will come that way at the last time. But he didn't. He came in a way so gentle, even a baby can understand. Even one of these little children. And not just understand, but be saved thereby. By his coming, his living, his doing what he did. So I ask you, who is he? Who is Jesus? 
The knowledge of who he is is the center of that other passage I read to you before. Back in 1 John chapter 4. As again I say, we have much fear. I myself have been concerned and at times fearful about either how much more reaction would happen by the powers that rule over us or what would happen if the virus that we've been dealing with for a couple of years takes a different kind of turn than it has and becomes much worse. Fearful of uh, financial reasons and fearful of other things that naturally come in life. But to know, to truly know that Jesus is the Son of God and to love him because he first loved us is to cast all fear out. John goes into this in more great specifics. I'd love to go through the whole uh, chapter, but no, I do have more time. So maybe we will. In First John it says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. So you see, the same division, the exact same division that they had way back then, that even his brethren couldn't pierce the veil of seeing exactly who Jesus was, that is a matter of what spirit laid in them, not what education, testimony, heritage, and history, not what other types of uh, material or physical blessings they might have been given. There's only one gauge, that is him sending his spirit. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For God is love, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. There's a (coughs) biblical and historical correlation between knowing and loving. Loving and knowing. Now, because of the nature of our language and our culture, and I think one maybe pushes the other, love sometimes is referred to generally just as a moment of passion or a promise of consistency or a putting up with certain things that someone might do. Love is far more complicated than any of those simple definitions, but the Bible makes it very clear. When it talks about husbands and wives, it says to you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Know your wife is to love her. Husbands, love your wives. These are just separate definitions of the same thing. See, God in loving us truly knows us. And so it behooves us to desire to know him, to test the spirits and try them, to know him, that we might rightly, more properly, love him. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. You don't love him, you don't know him. If you don't know him, you don't love him. If you love him, you know him more every day. One of the great wonders I have run into in my meditations is how every single time we consider God more fully in the light of his word, there's more to learn. There's more to wonder. His wisdom continues to unfold the more he reveals. His love and his tenderness and his care for us continue to grow and grow and grow. Seems our limitations of who God is and our understanding of him are entirely ours. And the solution to that is entirely his. That he continues to reveal himself to us over the years. That, I think, is one of the best pictures of heaven that we have. That we, for all of eternity, can continue to learn about his greatness and his goodness and his word and his love and his justice. And above all, his holiness. That we might continue to do that and never stop being pleased in it. We live in an age of distraction where these things that tickle our minds and our itching ears, we ever seek to have fulfill us. But there is something to fulfill you entirely, and that is God himself. God, his person. God, his unchanging, unbroken word. God, his people, and his church. For our love is not just reverberated back to him, given back even as unprofitable as it might be, but it's also given one to another. We are blessed to know and to love one another even as we love him. 
Here it says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Now, if your fears don't take a back seat when you read something like that, you might not have read it all the way. God's love was proven, brought to light, because he sent his only begotten Son to the world. Why? Because you were dead. Every other fear you have in your life takes a backseat to that, doesn't it? And not just that. We're not just talking about dead temporarily here, but dead forever dead. All dead. Eternally dead. And by dead, I mean separated from the very fountain of life. God, the Father. Instead, he sent his beloved, his only begotten son. The greatest thing he could possibly have given us. And that's not even close. After he had already given us life. And the very breath in your nostrils has been part of an unbroken chain of breathing. Since God breathed his breath into the nostrils of the first man. Consider that for a second. Right? How that the life that we have now, even the breath in our nostrils, came from a gift of his. But he sent something far better and far greater. And at a far higher cost to him. Because he loves us. Why? That we might live. And herein is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us. And again, he repeats it. He sent his son. But here he reveals a little bit more about where that life came from. To be a propitiation for our sins. To be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It seems like simple logic, simple reasoning. But remember what I said. The knowledge and love, true love, that true right affection are inextricably bound. That God's love for us involves a lot of knowledge. And the more you read the word, you begin to realize how much he knows us. How fully he understands our frame. There is no sin of yours that he didn't have to pay for. There is no sin of yours that would not expunge you from the halls of heaven. That would not cause death to come on you entirely and finally. So every one of them he had to know and to love and to cleanse. And in some ways, he still is to this day. And in other ways, we are finally and fully glorified in him. We are blessed. It says, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. And there's a hint here. Right? Why does he go from talking about not seeing God to loving each other? The same passage here. It says, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. Because... If you want to see God, it is also in one another. His spirit dwelling in his beloved saints is a great opportunity to dwell and to intermingle with God, to have communion with him, to enjoy our time, and to have those sweet pleasures that we hope to have above in small forms here below. To see as we do through a glass darkly. But hereby know we that we dwell in him. Because that's a big question, isn't it? Every Christian knows there are times when you must needs have comfort. There's a reason why the Bible continually tells you how to know that we dwell in him. Because there will be dark moments. There will be horrors and fears that come upon us in the night. Especially as we age, the time of fearing continuing to grow upon us. But here he gives us the answer. Hereby, hereby know we that we dwell in him, that we live in him. That our life is centered in him because he hath given us of his spirit that spirit that makes the scripture alive not that it doesn't live already but that we might see that we might eat of the of the word that we might live and dwell therein and we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world that is after a fashion the finality of it isn't it that we have testified just remember what jesus said he testified of the world as works were evil, implying that there is a savior. I'm sorry, saying that there is a savior implies that there is a need to be saved. That there is something that will happen that is terrible without that salvation stepping in. And so our love for him, for what he has done, remembering that the world doesn't know who he is or hides the truth, holds down the truth in a lie, wrestles it down and keeps it from getting out continues to lie to themselves so they don't have to deal with the facts of who he is and that he has come we know and we confess that he 
sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Now you might say, this is, seems like a pretty easy uh, game to trick, right? If I say, all you got to do is confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and we know, right? You might say, well, I can figure that one out. I remember as a child, sitting, sitting in the dining room, I was probably seven or eight years old, and that's when I figured it out, that if all we really have to do is believe that Jesus is the Son of God, well, I don't have to do that right now, right? I'll just, I'll just wait. I can have the best of both worlds, right? Just as long, as long as I know when I'm going to die. So I'm just kind of playing the odds. I'm about seven years old, thinking to myself, okay, all I got to do is just say a sinner's prayer, and then everything's going to be fine. So well, what's the point of doing this hard stuff, right? But that's not the way it works. Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is something that is hated in this world, and that will always be hated in this world until he comes. It is the nature of this place. It's a sad, and fa- sad fact and a true one. But that confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is not something we're going to do to game a system. It's, going to, it's something that we do after he has broken us in sin and made us fully realize and need him, fully realize, fully realize our dependence upon him and see how the world itself should have been destroyed countless times over. Remember that Noah and seven members of his family were all that was left of the old world. And it was a small difference between God destroying all and saving them. And I know that I I may have mentioned this here before, but it says that the world was saved. And you know it because your entire world lives because of Noah and his family. That bit of history is an important way to define some of the things that happen in the Bible. I know I'm digressing a little bit, but bear with me here. That because they survived, God can say he saved the world. So when it says that Jesus was sent because God so loved the world, and it says that God saved the world through his son, that's what it's talking about. That all should have been destroyed. And indeed, would anyone say that any of those people who were drowned in the flood were saved in the ark? Of course not. They were not counted as part of the world by God's definition at that point. But he saved the world for all of us are thankful because all of us came from those eight ancestors. But again, I digress. And so saying, he says, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in God in love. I'm sorry, he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Again, it goes back to that definition that he now repeats a second time that God is love. Again, I started this whole thing out saying that perfect love casts out fear, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But if you consider the bigness of all that's being discussed here, the fullness of God's love for us, what he has sacrificed, how much he has proved it, how he gives us comfort to know that we're in him here again and again. These things are so big, there is nothing worth fearing. Nothing worth fearing in that way, that it is a tormentor. That's why Jesus tells us to cast our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. We're also called to be this for one another. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. As he is, so are we in this world. I'd like you to, again, remember the passage that we were reading earlier in John. How that he came, he was obeying the Father, he was testifying of the world, he came, and the world didn't know what to make of him. It's a difficult thing when you first realize that people who are not Christians, or even worse yet, who hate God, have certain opinions of you. And they think that you're a strange religious zealot, or you're full of yourself because you, you think you've got it all figured out. They have all these different opinions, and then you begin to see that what they said of Jesus is true of us, isn't it? That some of them think that we're a threat to society. Some truly do. And it becomes stronger as certain elements grow in our society. Some people think that, that we're deceiving people, right? Uh, an old famous saying is that um, religion is the opiate of the masses, said by a very, very evil man who killed tens of millions. They say many things, but we know... We know that God is love and that we live in him, that we are dead without him. And herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. It reminds me of a passage in Proverbs that I often lean on when difficult times come. It says that in the day of thine adversity, if if your strength fails, then your strength is small. The day of your adversity, your strength fails, then your strength is small. 
if you ever had to stand up before a judge in a difficult situation, you found yourself just squealing inside, like you'd, like you'd uh, maybe swallowed a bunch of eels. Your insides are all moving around. You don't really know how to, how to respond. Beloved, when we stand before the great judge, or in the day of judgment, we no longer have to have any fear. All fear that we might have now of sickness, of pain, of troubles, of persecution, well, we, if we don't have to fear him in the day of judgment, then we have nothing here to fear. Not because we're somehow stronger or more courageous, but because he loved us. And because he loved us, we then can love him. And because he loved us and knows us and teaches us and cares for us and sanctifies us and has glorified us, we also can love one another. And it says that the fruits of the Spirit, the meekness, the tenderness, the faith, the love, hope, and all the others, against such there is no law. You cannot break a law while bearing the fruits of the Spirit, while living in the way that he's taught us. It's just not possible doing those things. Not to say laws can be erected to um, cause us not to do certain things. What it means is that there's no need to fear law. There is no need to fear God. And by that I mean not to fear him for who he is, but to fear him in the form of him having retribution for our sins and our actions and our failures. All fear should rightly be cast out. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him. Why? says it again. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. I'll remind you, who is Jesus? Who is he? What is his testimony? I say is. Was is an okay way to put it, but who is he? He presently rules at the right hand of his father, sitting while the, while the father makes his enemies his footstool. That's no small place to be. That is no small deal. But all the while, he loves us. Remember, it says he sits beside the father. But there was one testimony in scripture where he wasn't sitting when he was by the father. Again, revealing his true and tender love for us. And that was when Stephen was stoned. It says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the father. So you know that he only stands in genuine care and concern for his beloved and martyred saint. You know how much he loves us. We've seen every evidence that there is. And let this, beloved, be our chief concern, our chief meditation that we think about and concern ourselves only with how that he has loved us in all the many ways of his testimony. As we go through life, we have no reason to fear. None whatsoever, because we know who is Jesus. Thank you for your good attention.